Who is the devil and where did he come from? Does he have any power? If he does, where does he get it from? What are the wiles and schemes of the devil that the Bible keeps talking about? How much attention should we be giving the devil? If the devil is defeated, can't we just ignore him? In this series, we're going to the Word to find the answers to these very common questions and more. Hello and welcome to Faith Talks. everybody and welcome back to Faith Talks where we are learning how to walk by faith through grace. Today is part 20 of my series Know Thy Adversary and in this episode and the last episode we are doing a Q&A. So last time we started answering all of the questions that you guys had sent in about the devil and things that aren't super clear in the word of God and we went to the word of God and we dug out the answers. So I ran out of time last time to finish answering all of your questions. So I'm going to use this episode to continue answering those questions. And this will be the conclusion of this series. So the the question that we started to answer last time had two parts. And the second part to that question was, there seems to be oppression or interference when one is making positive progress or about to level up in some way. Okay, let's go to the word and find out what God says about that. In Mark 4 verse 17, it says that persecution and affliction arises for the word's sake. Okay, so Satan comes to steal the word and he will use persecution and affliction to do it. All right, so you might have gotten a hold of the word of God and you're applying it to your life. You're getting excited about the word and you're starting to see breakthrough in some areas. And then what happens? Satan comes to steal the word. He comes to steal the word and he uses persecution and affliction to do it because he has to get you thinking that the word isn't working. He has to make you believe that the word isn't working. So what he does is he will use persecution and affliction to try to steal the word. The word persecution means to chase, to pursue or the hunt to bring someone down like an animal. And the word affliction means internal pressure that causes someone to feel confined, restricted, without options, or like there is no way of escape. Now, keeping in mind that the enemy cannot do anything to us without our cooperation or consent, what is the persecution and affliction that he uses to try to steal the word? Now, I've had some people say, and I've actually thought this myself, that when I started speaking the word, everything got worse. The symptoms got worse. The attacks doubled. Everything started screaming at me. Everything got worse when I started standing on the word. Okay, but just remember that the devil cannot 
do anything to us without our consent. He can't ramp up the symptoms. He can't make our body's condition worse. He can't make the sickness or disease that's attacking our body worse. He has to use persecution and affliction to try to steal the word. And the way he does that is through thoughts. Remember, we learned in the series that the wiles of the enemy are his thoughts. So what happens is, is that we're starting to see progress or breakthrough in our lives. We're starting to get more and more revelation of the word of God and we're getting excited about what we're seeing and what we're getting understanding of. And the devil cannot have us bearing fruit and having a testimony. So he will start using persecution and affliction to try to steal the word. He will start to bombard us with thoughts about that situation that contradict the word and are designed to put immense pressure on us, attempting to make us feel confined, restricted, without options and like things are getting worse. And he will use persecution. He will use the words of doctors, the words of family or friends or professional experts to reinforce his thoughts and put pressure on us designed to deter and discourage us. And it's not necessarily that the situation has gotten worse, but what's going on is that the devil is applying pressure to us. He's putting pressure on us to try and talk us into giving up. The situation hasn't gotten worse, but the pressure to try and steal the word has gotten worse. And that pressure is always mental pressure. And the argument that he likes to use the most is that very thought. He uses that very thought to try to steal the word. And he'll say to us, things are getting worse. And the reason is, is because of the progress that I'm making. And see, if we take or accept that thought or that lie, we will give whatever that thing that is going on in our lives permission to stay Okay, so the enemy comes to us and tells us that the reason things are getting worse is because we're standing on the word and we'll think, yes, the reason that things are getting worse is because I'm standing on the word and then we accept what's going on because we think it's a result of us standing on the word. Okay, so you see how subtle and sly and what a deceiver he is. But what does God tell us to do? God tells us to keep watering that word, keep guarding that word seed we've planted, don't grow weary in well-doing, not let go of our confession of faith, to bring those thoughts into captivity and make them obedient to the word of God, to stand and having done all to stand, to continue standing and to cast down those thoughts and reasonings and opinions and make them obedient to the word of God. So when those thoughts come to us, things are getting worse because I'm standing on the word. That's when we answer those thoughts and we say, no, devil, you are defeated. You back off in Jesus name, body. I call you healed. Jesus paid the price for my healing and you are healed now in Jesus name. And you answer those thoughts with the word of God. Or if he tells you that the reason that you're experiencing all of these attacks is because of the progress that you're making, you answer those thoughts and you say, no, 
devil, you are defeated. You're under my feet. You bow your knee. You flee from me in Jesus' name. I am perfect and complete and whole and well right now in Jesus' name. And don't let him finish his sentence. (laughs) Okay, the next question is, is God trying to teach us a lesson through our tragedy and pain? Isn't God sovereign? Okay, so this question would take a very long time to answer thoroughly. And there's no short answer for this question except that no, God does not use tragedy and sickness and pain to teach us things. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 tells us what God does use to teach us. And he says that he uses his word. God uses his word to instruct, to correct, to convict and to train us. He does not use tragedy and sickness and pain to teach us lessons. We can learn through those situations, but we can still learn the same lesson that we learn through those situations if we just get our nose in the word of God. I actually have a podcast series called, Is God Really in Control? And that will answer many of the questions that you might have around this subject as well. Is God sovereign? I really encourage you to go and listen to that. And that is episodes 29 to 31 of my podcast. And you will also find it on my YouTube channel in audio. Okay, so is God trying to teach us a lesson through our tragedy and pain? No. Isn't God sovereign? Well, it depends what your definition of sovereign is. So go and listen to that series, Is God Really in Control? And that will help to answer that question for you. Next question is, sometimes preachers quote that Satan is the God of this world. Does that mean that we believers are not? I thought that we have been given authority over this world, which means that the devil would not be God of this world. Could you please clarify? We know that Satan is the God of this world because God tells us that he is the God of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, it tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. And the God of this world is Satan. And that's God with a small g. When God, our God, (laughs) created Adam and Eve, he created them as God's small g of this world. We are God's offspring. We are made in his image and in his likeness. And he created us to have dominion in this earth and to operate and function the same way that he operates and functions. And he designed us and created us to be God's small g of this world. He created us to have dominion over the earth and to rule over it. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they handed that dominion and authority over to Satan and Satan became the God, small g, of this world. Now, when Jesus went to the cross, he took back the authority and dominion that Satan had stole and he put it back in the hands of men. Satan has now been stripped of all power, but he is still on the loose, okay? He is still on the loose in the earth for a period of time until Jesus comes back and sets things back into the order which they were supposed to be in from the beginning, and Satan will be cast into the eternal lake of fire forever and ever. But for the meantime, he is still on the loose in this earth and he is still God, small g, of this world until Jesus comes back. 
In John 15 verse 19, Jesus tells us that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. And Colossians 1 verse 13 says that we have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, which is the world, and we have been translated into the kingdom of the Son of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, I've got a really good example for you. Many years ago, I lived and worked in Saudi Arabia. So as an Australian citizen, I went to Saudi Arabia to live and to work over there. And in Saudi Arabia, there was an Australian embassy. And if I was inside the Australian embassy, even though I was technically in the country of Saudi Arabia, as long as I was inside the Australian embassy, I was under Australian law and governance and the law of Saudi Arabia didn't apply to me any time that I was inside the Australian embassy. And there is a king of Saudi Arabia, but he didn't have any rule or authority in the Australian embassy. And if he did try to exert any power or authority over an Australian citizen, the full might and power of the Australian government would come to the defense of that Australian citizen. Now, we may be physically living on the earth in the world, but we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The earth is our temporary dwelling place, but we are nationals of heaven. The God of this world, who is Satan, has no rule or authority in the kingdom of heaven or over anyone who belongs to that kingdom. The dominion and authority which God has given us supersedes and overrides any dominion or authority that may have been given over to Satan by people who don't know that they are submitting to or cooperating with him. So yes, Satan still is the God of this world until Jesus comes back, but the authority that God has given us supersedes and overrides the death and destruction that is in the world. And as long as we remain in the kingdom of God, the enemy cannot touch us. Another statement that someone made was, I think believers need to know how to take authority over the devil. First, that we have been given authority and then practical ways of how to get him to flee from us using the name of Jesus, etc. Well, I would like to say that I 100% agree <laughs> with that statement and I'm not going to answer that here, but I do have a podcast series called You Are the Boss of the Devil and it's covering the believer's authority and that's episodes 39 to 44 of my podcast. And if you go and listen to that, you will learn all about the believer's authority and I also give you practical ways of how to exercise your authority over the enemy. Now, something that I do want to address in this Q&A is Jezebel spirits. Have you ever heard someone say that someone has a Jezebel spirit? And that is something that is commonly heard in certain denominations, that someone has a Jezebel spirit or they are being influenced by a Jezebel spirit. Or someone might say that they have an Absalom spirit. And basically, it's implying that there are specialty demons who are responsible for a person's specific personality or behaviors. Some other demons that have been given names are the Leviathan spirit, the Delilah spirit, or the Ahab spirit. But with every doctrine or belief, 
we have to bring everything back to what does the word say. And the Bible does not say anywhere that we are to identify or assign a label to a demonic spirit. And there is no biblical example of this. What God does tell us to do is to resist the devil and he will flee. And in fact, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees in John 8 verse 44, and he tells them that they are of their father, the devil. So it is not biblical, nor is it our responsibility to identify or name demonic spirits. It's our job to exercise our authority and dominion over the devil. (laughs) So when we pray for someone, we bind the devil's influence over them, and that's enough to get the job done. Another question that came in is, how do we know if a sickness is from a virus or an evil spirit? I've heard that a sickness can be a spirit of infirmity. For example, people often say that arthritis is a spirit. If it is a spirit, do we need to know so that it can be cast out? This is a really good question and that's come up a few times before as well. Well, let's look to the word and see what God says. In Acts 10 verse 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. So notice that the people who required healing were all under demonic oppression. Sickness and disease of any kind is demonic oppression. If we look at the ministry of Jesus, we can see that sometimes he healed the sickness or disease, like he pulled the lame man up and he healed the blind man and he healed the lepers, and sometimes he cast out the unclean spirit. And I don't believe that this was meant to say to us that we have to work out whether something is a demonic spirit or whether it's just a sickness or disease. I believe that this was to show us that we can do both. We can do either. So I like to think of an octopus. An octopus has a big head and he has eight tentacles. And if you think of the head as the devil and the demons and the tentacles of the octopus are demonic oppression. So a tentacle could be sickness and disease or fear or anything that steals, kills or destroys. Jesus told us in Mark eleven twenty three to speak to the mountain and the mountain is anything that is hindering us, which could be sickness or disease or any other kind of thing. We are to speak to the mountain, but Jesus also told us to resist the devil and he would flee because the devil is the source of all sickness and disease. And so really, guys, I really believe that either way is just as effective as the other. I know people personally who have been healed by confessing the word consistently and diligently over their bodies and taking God's word like medicine. I also know people who have been healed from various sicknesses and diseases by commanding the spirit of infirmity to leave their bodies in Jesus' name. I know other people who have been healed simply by addressing every thought about the problem and every symptom that speaks to them with, no, I was healed at the cross. Okay, so I really don't believe that we have to deal with one sickness or disease one way and another one a different way. 
But what I do believe is that we can be speaking the word consistently and deliberately and the word is taking effect even though we don't see it. But then the devil will come to us and whisper to us that the reason that we aren't seeing results is because we should be speaking to the spirit of infirmity. And what those thoughts are designed to do is to get us into confusion about what we are or aren't doing right. And we think that the word isn't working and that we've been barking up the wrong tree. And guys, we have to remember that we are not fighting for healing. We are enforcing our healing. And we can enforce our healing by declaring healing scriptures over our bodies until our bodies are restored to their healed state and that sickness and disease has left. We can enforce that healing by speaking directly to the devil and the spirit of infirmity and commanding it to get out in Jesus' name. Either way, we are dealing with the same source. Either way, we are coming from a position of knowing what belongs to us, knowing who we are in Christ Jesus and enforcing that. Either way, we are dealing with the same source. We are dealing with the same octopus. (laughs) So for example, the other day I woke up with a really sore throat My first thought was, "Uh uh-oh, I'm getting something. And then immediately I started saying, no, devil, you can't touch my body. I was healed at the cross. I resist you and I resist you lying symptoms. You can't touch me with your viruses and your colds and your flus. You bow your knee. You flee from me in Jesus' name. I was healed at the cross and I'm healed now. And after about an hour, it left and I never had to deal with it again. So if the enemy can steal the word we are sowing and standing on by making us think that we're doing it wrong, he'll keep us in bondage to that sickness or disease. The Lord has given us an arsenal of spiritual weapons. He's given us the name of Jesus. He's given us the blood of Jesus. He's given us the word of God. He's given us the armor of God. He's told us to speak to the mountain. He's told us to resist the devil. He's given us them all in a big basket and he's put them in our hands and he said, here, use any one of these to resist the devil, to maintain your position of dominion and authority over the devil. And any one of those tools is as effective and will accomplish what God has given it to us to accomplish, but it's up to us which one we decide we want to use. And we just have to take those weapons and we have to use them. We have to do what we know to do and we have to keep doing it. And if the Holy Spirit needs us to make an adjustment to what we're doing, he will show us and it will be a revelation to us. It won't come to us because we've tried to think and sweat and agonize over what we are or aren't doing right. So if you are praying for someone, say to go back to the example of the arthritis, if you are praying for someone with arthritis, just ask the Lord, Lord, show me, is there anything specific that I need to pray for this person for? But if he doesn't show you anything, I would suggest you simply speak to that condition. You speak to that arthritis and command it to go. Tell the devil he's defeated and he can't occupy space in that person's body. Speak to their body and command it to be healed in Jesus' name and simply enforce the healing that Jesus provided for that person. Another question that came up is what about yoga? and acupuncture and alternative medicine. Can that give an open door to the devil? All right, so the Bible does not explicitly mention yoga (laughs) or acupuncture or any of those kind of things. 
And I personally don't believe that there is anything wrong with these things because God looks at the heart and it all depends on the motivation of the heart. If we practice yoga simply for its physical benefits, then there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. However, if we were to start getting into the spiritual element of yoga and worshipping other gods and participating in the Eastern religion aspect of that, that's when I believe it can be dangerous because God says to have no other gods except him. But if we're just doing it to stretch and to get flexible and to tone our muscles, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. And it's the same with acupuncture. Many people have found that acupuncture Acupuncture provides tremendous relief from pain or other ailments, and there is nothing wrong with that either. And I don't believe that acupuncture has any spiritual mechanisms or associations except that it's traditional Chinese medicine. And if you were to do some digging, you'd actually find that a lot of our modern medical techniques and treatments have their roots in Eastern and ancient medicines. And that's why it all comes down to our heart. And Romans 14 talks all about this. It talks all about doing things from the right motivation and not doing the things that our hearts convict us about. In verse 22, it says, The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is the man who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats or partakes, because his partaking is not of faith, and whatever is not of faith is sin. So basically what this verse is doing is that if you do something and your heart does not convict you about it, and you have no, you have a clear conscience before God, and you've asked the Lord, should I do this, and he's given you the green light, then go ahead and do it. But if you're about to do something and you are like, oh, I don't know if I should be doing this or not. I don't know if I'm giving place to the devil. Um, Maybe I shouldn't be doing this, but you go ahead and do it anyway. Then that's where you can be treading on dangerous ground because you're not doing that thing in faith. And God says that whatever is not of faith is sin. So if you want to get acupuncture, but you feel very strongly that you shouldn't, then follow that conviction. If you want to do yoga, and you really feel that you shouldn't, then you should follow that conviction. If you want to do yoga and you have no problem with it, and while you're sitting there in your lotus position, you're meditating on scripture, and you have full confidence before God that there's nothing wrong with doing that, then go for it because you're in faith. Okay, so to answer that question, no, I don't believe that yoga or acupuncture give an open door to the devil. As we learned in this series, the only access the enemy can get to us is through our thoughts. He can't just come in and possess someone because they had a few yoga lessons or they had acupuncture, because if he could, he would possess everybody who has ever done it. And if he could, I know that God would tell us explicitly in the Bible, do not do these things because they give place to the devil. (laughs) The devil has to have people submit themselves to him and cooperate with him in order to accomplish anything in their lives. And he does it through thoughts. That's the only way that he can get access to people. 
Now, obviously, if you're deliberately seeking out spiritual weirdness and you're doing Ouija boards or seances or you're watching pornography or you're doing things that the Bible is very clear are wrong, then yes, you are definitely giving opportunity to the devil and cooperating with him. The Bible says that we are to only give our attention to things that are true and noble and just and pure and lovely and of good report and virtuous and praiseworthy. So if we are allowing these things into our eyes and into our ears and into our hearts that aren't things that are pure and lovely, etc., and that in our hearts we know these things are wrong, then we are treading on dangerous ground. Guys, we have to follow the direction and leading of the Holy Spirit with everything that we do. And there's going to be a lot of things come up in life in the near future where there's no clear biblical definition of whether they're right or wrong. That's when we must, we must go to the Lord and say, Lord, should I do this? Should I do this or not? Should I take this or not? Should I follow this or not? Should I vote for this person or not? We have to go before the Lord. We have to line everything that we do up with the word of God, follow our peace, let the Lord give us a green light or a red light. And we must never use our convictions or what the Lord has shown us to judge or condemn other people if they are convicted about certain things. All right, last question, and this is going to take a little bit of time to answer, but I really know that it's going to bless you. Why did God ask the devil if he'd considered Job and why did he give him permission to steal from him? And, oh, I had such a fun time studying this question out and I saw some amazing things which I am so excited to share with you. All right, so let's go to Job 1 verse 8. It says in Job 1 verse 8, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? Now, if you were to read this verse at face value, it would appear that the Lord was pointing Job out to Satan. And he more or less is saying, Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth? And he's, it looks like he's boasting about him and pointing him out and saying, you know, check this guy out. <laughs> and it would look like that he was holding him out as bait. There was a lot of confusion over this and even I was confused over it. But when I studied that phrase, have you considered? Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? When I studied the phrase, have you considered? Wow, it was amazing what opened up to me. That phrase, have you considered, is the Hebrew word sum. And it means to put, to place, to set or to assign. And in the Young's literal translation, it actually says, And Jehovah said unto the adversary, Have you set your heart against my servant Job? And this gave this phrase a whole new meaning. In other words, the devil, Satan, had set himself against Job because he was such an upright, God-fearing man. 
So God wasn't pointing Job out to Satan. He wasn't saying, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? What do you think about him? Satan already had his eyes on Job and had set himself against him. God was more or less saying to Satan, why are you singling him out? Why are you picking on him? Why have you set your heart against my servant Job? And then Satan goes on to say to the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Now, verse 12 says in most translations, it looks like that God says, very well, everything he has is in your hands. Other translations say, all right, do what you want to him, or all right, you may test him. And again, there was this gray area. It's like, really, God, did you just more or less give Satan permission to test Job? Did you more or less just say, go ahead, do what you want with him? When I studied that phrase out very well, everything that he has is in your hands. In other translations, it says, all right, do what you want to him. This whole phrase is one single Hebrew word, which is the word yad, which means hand, power, or authority. It's actually the same Hebrew word that's used when Sarai was complaining to Abram about Hagar, her maidservant, and Abram told Sarai that Hagar was in her hand, or this Hebrew word yad. She was under her power, under her authority, and that she could do what she wanted to her. Hagar more or less belonged to Sarai and Sarai was free to do what she liked with her. God was not giving Satan permission to attack Job, but because he is a God who cannot lie, he was admitting to Satan that everything Job had was already in his hand already in his power and under his authority because at that time Satan had usurped man's power and authority and had free reign in the earth. In those days, God had to make covenants with certain people that promised them protection, promised them blessing and favor and health, and promised them that their enemies would be defeated if they abided by the conditions of that covenant. But Job did not have any such covenant with God and he didn't have Jesus as his intercessor like we do now. Satan could come and go from the presence of God and he could accuse men before God and everything that man had was in his hand unless that man had a covenant with God. So in Job 2 verse 7, we see that Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job. God didn't point Job out to Satan. He was more or less saying to Satan, 
Why have you set your heart against him? Why are you picking on him when he's so upright and he's so blameless and he worships me? And Satan said to God, well, he would curse you if you took everything that he had. And God then said to Satan, well, everything that he has is already in your hands. So he wasn't giving Satan permission to destroy everything that Job had. He was basically saying, well, I don't have a covenant with this man, so I'm not able to legally interfere in what you want to do with him. And that's when Satan went out and did what he did to Job. Another thing that we have to remember is that Job had opened the door to Satan to take everything from him through fear. Remember, we learned that fear is one of the ways that we open the door or we cooperate with the devil. Job had repeatedly made sacrifices to this God that he barely knew for his children because he feared that they had sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And he made sacrifices to God continuously because he was so full of fear that his children had sinned. And in Job 3 verse 25, Job admits that that which I had greatly feared has come upon me. That which I greatly dreaded or have been terrified of has come upon me. In a sense, God's hands were tied. He had no covenant with Job. Job had given opportunity to the devil through fear. And at that time, Satan had free reign and dominion and authority in the earth because Adam and Eve had willingly given it to him. And something else to remember is that Job had no knowledge of the devil. In the Old Testament, anything supernatural that happened was attributed to God because people were mostly ignorant of the devil. And this was because before Jesus came and atoned for sin, people had no authority over him. So God couldn't reveal the devil to the people under the Old Covenant because they had no way of dealing with him. So when all these tragedies and disasters struck Job, Job thought that it was God doing it to him because to him, God was the only logical source of his suffering. And Job was completely sincere when he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But you know what the Bible says? Job speaks without knowledge and his words are without wisdom. In fact, Job overall had a very limited understanding or knowledge of God. He didn't have a Bible to read and God never revealed himself to him or made a covenant with Job the way that he had with Adam and Noah and Abraham. God had to appear to Job in a whirlwind and set him straight. In Job 42 verse 4, Job said to God, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I abhor my words. I detest what I have said about you, and I repent in dust and ashes. He actually repented of his words where he said that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He repented in dust and ashes for having said that. And after Job repented, God was able to restore double what Job had lost because that's the true nature of God. God is not the thief who steals, kills or destroys. He is not a God who dangles us in front of Satan in order to test us and to try us. He is not a God who puts us through trials and tests and tragedies in order to teach us something. God is the giver of life and only life in abundance to the full until it overflows. 
Job had very little understanding of God. It was like Job was trying to look at God through a pinhole. It would be like us trying to look at the universe through a pinhole in a piece of paper. It would be impossible for us to see all the universe's splendor and glory and majesty. We would only see a minuscule fraction of what it really contained. But now, under the new covenant, we have maximum revelation of God. We are able to see the full picture of the nature of God, greater than any revelation of any of the Old Testament patriarchs or prophets. Now we have the tremendous honor and privilege of being able to look at Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who is the exact representation of the will of God for man. And what did Jesus do? He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. If the Bible seems to say things about God that don't line up with his true nature and character, there is always an explanation for it. Guys, God is good. God is love. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. New Covenant believers should never compare themselves with Job. It would be like comparing a Ferrari with a horse and cart. Job is not our example. Jesus is our example. All right, that is the end of our Q&A. So I hope you've learned something beneficial and you've had some revelation on some things that you may have had questions about. Again, if I didn't cover anything that you had questions on, please let me know by email and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. But thank you for joining me on this journey of getting to know our adversary. And I really pray and believe that what you've learned has empowered you and that the revelation you've received has just given you more determination never to let the enemy steal, kill or destroy in any area of your life ever again. God bless you guys and I look forward to our next series on Faith Talks very soon. God bless you. Thank you so much for being part of today's episode of Faith Talks. If you have any questions related to today's or any of my previous episodes, if you have a testimony you would like to share, or for a free copy of Confessions for Life, please email me at questions at faithtalks.com.au. For episode announcements and regular encouragement, you can now find Faith Talks with Emily Preston on Facebook and Instagram. Finally, if you know anyone who would benefit from today's or any of my previous teachings, please share this podcast with them and help them receive revelation of the truth that will make them free. Until next time, know that I am praying for you and don't forget to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, and you will be blessed in everything that you do. God bless you.